It's about domestic politics in the U.S. driving foreign policy. I think that's how the rest of the world is going to see this, by and large. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Ben Pauker, FP's executive editor for The Web, and you're listening to The ER. I'm in Washington today, and I'm joined by Colin Call, who's a co-editor of FP's shadow government blog with Julie Smith and Derek Cholet. He's currently a professor at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service in the Security Studies program. Also joining us today is Dan Deleuze, FP's national security correspondent. And calling in from London is FP's Europe editor, Alicia Whitmire. ER nerds, if you have any questions or comments, you can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. So I'm so pleased to have our little confefe here, a small group of people. <laughs> Who know exactly what the president is talking about. Um, always. Always, right? And I, I think it's pronounced con, confif. Confif? Ah. Uh-huh. Maybe that's just the European pronunciation. <laughs> um, so in about three hours' time, President Donald Trump is scheduled to walk out into the Rose Garden and give a pronouncement on the Paris Accords, which is the 190-nation agreement on carbon reductions that the U.S. under... Barack Obama's administration has signed on to. So it's a little bit odd. We don't know exactly what he's going to say, but this is clearly the news of the day. Colin, if he pulls out, is it a terrible deal for the United States? What does this look like around the world? Well, I think from a pers- from the perspective of U.S. leadership, it's catastrophic. Uh, I mean, we championed uh, this deal. Uh, we really brokered it uh, bilaterally, first with the Chinese and then expanded it to include the entire globe. I think that it would signal to the world a, a certain degree of moral abdication, uh, that the United States doesn't care about our children and our children's children, since climate change, uh, according to the consensus of scientists, is one of the few truly existential challenges that we face and that we just don't care about that. I think it would also question our, our credibility, uh, given that we marshaled the world uh, and, and you know galvanized uh, the world to address this challenge and now have walked away from it. It would suggest, I think, that uh, our politics can make such rapid swings that the United States can't be trusted. I think that could be have some lasting damage. I think that it could send some complicating signals to markets uh, and therefore position us poorly uh, to be able to kind of stay on the cutting edge of technology that will be relevant for manufacturing moving forward. Uh, you know, the statistic everybody uh, talks about is that, you know, there are 76,000 people involved in the coal industry. There are 550,000 people involved in the solar industry just in California. Uh, it's those industries that will define the American economy going forward. And last but not least, we know from Secretary Mattis on down that the Pentagon, when they look uh, at the national security challenges that we're likely to face in the 21st century, climate change is right up at the top. So it's also an abdication of our leadership on those issues. You were in the administration. We didn't mention this in your very short bio, but you served as deputy assistant to the president, national security advisor to the VP. I mean, you must have been involved in some level of these negotiations for the Paris Accords. How difficult was it to get buy-in from the various agencies of government to actually ink this deal to begin with? Yeah, I mean, I was, I was just, I would say, uh, largely a spectator to this. It was really people in the White House like Brian Deese or people before that like John Podesta. Secretary Kerry played a huge role. But no, it was an enormous effort. It, it was something that the president came in in 2009, committed uh, to show leadership on this issue. And it's something that built across uh, the first six years of the administration, really cu- culminating uh, in Paris. So it, it was hurting a lot of cats. And really, I think the approach was really to build up from a set of bilateral understandings, especially with China, uh, 
given uh, the outsized role that they play as the world's leading greenhouse gas emitter, and that that is only going to go up and up given Chinese economic growth and, and, and development. So really locking that in as kind of the, the cornerstone of our bilateral uh, engagement with China and then building out uh, from that. So this this would be unwinding uh, uh, quite uh, an extraordinary diplomatic effort, and I think doing grave damage uh, to us in Europe, Asia, and elsewhere. China has already said, I think, was it this morning, that they are going to stick with the Paris Accord Agreement. They are not pulling out. You know, this is a strategic play on the part of the Chinese. Their solar, you know, production is enormous. They they have made significant uh, attempts to curb pollution, to shut down coal plants, to push a green energy future. So, I mean, how does this play out with the the U.S.-China relationship? Well, it, I think it comes down to this, um, what, what Colin is saying, this kind of abdication. So it's, it's, if there's any illustration of the U.S. turning inward, I think it's this. And if you combine it with how Trump has approached a bunch of other issues, the U.S. is either absent or incoherent uh, and very kind of protectionist on trade, kind of standoffish about NATO. So I, I think a lot of U.S. allies in Europe and Asia – are sort of taking – it is about taking matters in their own hands now. I think they feel like they have to fill this vacuum. And so you see that in this joint statement, China and the EU talking about carrying on uh, the effort against climate change. There's another irony here too. You talk about the, the genesis of the agreement. If you remember, the Kyoto Protocols were criticized by a lot of people on the right, a lot of conservatives saying, you know, these are binding, really restrictive kind of measures and it's limiting our, our freedom of action. So in a way, uh, the Paris Agreement was very much kind of addressing those concerns that the Bush administration had way back when. And so this was voluntary. So in many ways, it was very much along the lines that a lot of conservative voices had called for. So there's, a, there's an irony there. And then one last thing, I think also how the rest of the world perceives this, it's about domestic politics in the U.S. driving foreign policy. I think that's how the rest of the world is going to see this by and large, right? Because you have corporations pleading with the White House not to do this. Uh, you even have some coal companies asking them not to do this. So who really is going to be served by this or really is going to applaud this? And it's going to be uh, the domestic base that supports uh, the president. And just to add what add to what Dan and Colin were saying, you know, I, I did a sort of quick perusal through various news, European news outlets this morning, uh, just to get a sense of how it was being covered here. Um, and this is obviously an unscientific sampling, uh, but the way that it was being covered was was overwhelmingly actually less about the the material effects of the U.S. pulling out of the Paris agreements. And there's sort of some debate about you know what what the sort of effects will be and whether there's so much momentum happening at the local and the business level that uh, you know this this isn't a big deal materially. Um, you know I don't want to play it down, but uh, my point here is that that the way that we're writing about it was was very much focused on. This, this is a signal about the U.S.'s role in the world. You know, this is a demonstration of Trump's unreliability, his irresponsibility, international agreements or commitments that should be taken seriously. So that, that's really been the primary response over here. So I think they're, they're definitely right. Just one last point I want to make about China, which is one of the interesting things that we saw during the transition 
was that the Trump officials, when they talked about the national security challenges that we faced, they basically said, yeah, ISIS is the wolf closest to the shed, right? It's the near-term challenge. But the medium and long-term challenge is the economic competition and the geopolitical competition with China. And what's so interesting is that they've bent over backwards basically to create a circumstance in which China is eating our lunch across the board. Uh, I mean, right right before uh, inauguration, uh, Xi speaks at Davos and basically says that China is ready to take over the mantle of global leadership. Then one of the first things that Trump does is pull out of the TPP, which basically clears the table uh, for uh, for China to, uh, in, in essence, negotiate its own regional trade agreement that'll that'll work to the disadvantage of U.S. interests and our workers. And now with Paris, China, you know, is immediately trying to fill the void to try to cozy up with the Europeans. And so there's just a lot of own goals here as it relates to uh, you know something that the the Trump administration claims that they care about, which is the long term competition with China. I mean. Is this just playing to – Dan, you said it, you know, Trump's political base. I mean, do are we seeing that this is the influence of Bannon and the populists, you know, playing a political game? Clearly, Trump wants wins, right? He wants to renegotiate contracts, whether it's NAFTA. He pulls out of the TPP. He signs a, a deal with Vietnam, right? These are small – this was yesterday as the, when the president was in town. But, you know, what are we are, – is, is this just Trump trying to – play a game here? Well, of course, uh, I don't think the White House would say that. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, there are people, uh, there, 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 the, there, are, there, there are voices in the fossil fuel industry lobby who will uh, support this or defend this. Um, but I think it is telling that basically corporate America urged the White House not to do this. Right. Even ExxonMobil, Goldman Sachs, there were letters to the president. That's right. right. Mm-hmm. And, and we should also keep in mind that however they come down on the agreement, and let's say they, they stay in it with uh, like massive objections and changing all the goals, they've already pursued an agenda on energy and the environment separate from this that is very much rejecting the whole idea of how to combat climate change. It's about you know, getting rid of greenhouse emissions, you know, reducing them, getting, scrapping them all together, you know, trying to kind of revive the coal industry. So what, however they were going to come down on the Paris Agreement, they had already kind of shown where they were going on this. And there is this school of thought. I don't know if Dick Cheney still subscribes to it, but it is this kind of drill baby drill idea that, you know, uh, rejecting basically climate change science and saying that, you know, we're going to put our chips on you know, the here and now, and we're not, we're not going to make our calculations based on uh, longer-term environmental effects. Sure, and Trump has already rolled back restrictions on Arctic drilling. There's restrictions on rollbacks on, you know, federal lands. But I want to come back to the China thing. We've got Secretary of Defense James Mattis is headed to the Shangri-La Dialogue, which is a big confab of world leaders of the top military officials from all over the world. And, you know, China's right at the center of this. This is in China's backyard. Um, And, you know, somehow North Korea seems to be the issue that he cares about most of all. We had B-1 overflights over the Korean peninsula. We had the somewhat uh, telling shootdown of an ICBM, which clearly seemed to elicit a response from Pyongyang. I'm just wondering, you know, the Korean issue seems so front and center in the president's mind. Colin, do you see any traction there? Is it it a possibility that we can actually see a deal or is this just tough guy bluster? 
No, no, no. I, it's interesting because, you know, I made a, a reference to the transition earlier. When they when they talked about China during the transition, they talked about it largely in terms of the economic war. That's the right. language they this use. This currency manipulator. With, with, exactly. Um, but, you know, and, and there was a concern before that they would basically prioritize the economic, the currency, the trade issues at the expense of the geopolitical uh, concerns and interests that we had with the Chinese. Uh, and what they've done is they flipped the script on that. They, that essentially because, you know, Obama told Trump the number one national security issue you're going to confront in 2017, 2018, the first two years of the administration is North Korea and the possibility that they're ed- edging closer to field testing and ICBM, which is a which is a game changer as it relates to our extended deterrent relationship uh, in East Asia. So you're going to have to deal with this. So you had the administration come in and in a sense manufacture a crisis. And that, and, and that I'm not actually... I'm not saying they made it up. I'm saying that they that they took behavior that North Korea was doing in terms of missile tests and they put it on the front burner uh, and called attention to it in order to create a sense of crisis to put pressure on China to solve the problem for the United States. And you see this through uh, Trump's tweets uh, going back um, months, but periodically he'll wake up at eight o'clock in the morning and basically say, you know, North Korea just launched a missile. That's very bad for China. They need to solve this problem. Um, and and in, in essence, he's willing to back away from some of the trade and currency stuff now if China just solves this problem for us. The, 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 the question that I have that I just – there's no answer to is if what they're hoping to do is that Kim Jong-un is just going to cry uncle and that he's just going to agree to denuclearize, that he's going to capitulate, and that that is somehow a precondition for us sitting down, that's never going to happen. Uh, this is his ace in the hole as it relates to regime survival, and he's really close to having an ICBM that could potentially deliver a nuclear weapon uh, to the continental United States. He's not going to stop in the absence of not only tremendous pressure, but some face-saving way out. And so that is what I don't what I don't know is whether Rex Tillerson and whoever is wandering around the halls at the State Department actually has a plan for a negotiation and, and its face-saving way out, or whether they're completely farming that out to China. Uh, and if they are farming it out to China, then I can imagine that President Xi is trying to think up a way in which uh, President Trump can maybe even meet Kim Jong-un uh, at some point uh, to work out the ultimate deal on North Korea. But if, they, if they're not willing to give something on the North Korean issue, they're not just going to get uh, the regime to, to uh, cry on. No, th- those Trump tweets are very telling, actually, because it's it's clearly a way of trying to protect himself and themselves. If this does, because they're setting themselves up for failure, right? They're setting a pretty high expectation that they're going to solve the the Gordian knot here. They're going to solve this North Korean problem, and there's no new plan here. There are no new options. It's the same options that several administrations have faced, and uh, I think there's. I, I would invite any listeners out there. I would like to know because. I can't find anyone to tell me inside the State Department, inside the administration, in Congress, anywhere, that China is actually ready to change fundamentally its calculation. They see North Korea in a completely different way than we do. They're worried about different things like the collapse in the North Korean regime and so on. And so I don't see how uh, a little bit of transactional dealing on Trump's part about, okay, well, I'm not going to hit you hard on this trade issue, is somehow going to you know, change everything in Beijing. I think Beijing is waiting this out, and they're and they're, they're just going to see when the Trump administration basically just kind of 
loses interest. Yeah, I mean, there might not be any new cards to play, but it certainly doesn't look like the strategic patience policy of the Obama administration. I mean, the, to me, it's the ratcheting Rhetorically, up. at least, yeah. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think, Colin, you bring up a great point. This, there's the ratcheting up of tensions, which theoretically in a sort of perfect world could provoke a response from China or push the North Koreans to do something. But Trump isn't the kind of guy that likes to give people a face-saving way out, does he? He likes to bully people. So it seems into submission. Now, whether McMaster and Tillerson or some of the sage hands surrounding Trump are able to, you know, have a strategy in place or able to give him a way out, you know, we we shall see. But, um, you know, the the rhetoric and the and the tensions and the, and the rhetoric both from Washington and from Pyongyang seems to just go up and up and up. But if you set aside the rhetoric, though, I mean, there is no new policy from Trump on this. If, if, they, if you were going to have if not be if you're going to be less strategically patient, then you would, for example, impose secondary sanctions. You would kind of try to somehow make an equivalent of the Iran model, even though they're very different situations. You go after any Chinese company that is doing business with North Korea, because that's the lifeline for the regime. If you want to squeeze North Korea, you have to cut off the money, and to cut off the money, you have to go after Chinese companies, and you have to have a confrontation with China and Chinese banks. And no administration has wanted to do that. The Obama administration sometimes, I think, discussed that. But, uh, and they sort of tried to imply that and, and, and you know, in veiled, in veiled ways threatened China about that. But I don't see the Trump White House ready to do that. Uh, and then what else is there? Military action? No, there really isn't any kind of limited military pressure. Uh, some people talk about trying to step up propaganda. You know, good luck with that. Uh, you know, dropping leaflets in North Korea. Um, the other thing I want to say is in Singapore, while Mattis might talk about – This is at the Shangri-La Summit. Sorry, yeah. at the Shangri-La Summit, which is every defense minister all over Asia is there, generals uh, everywhere. Uh, John McCain is usually walking around. And this is really a different situation. Right? It, it, at the previous um, Shangri-La Summits, you would have the U.S. Defense Secretary come and talk about the South China Sea and how, you know, we're concerned about this and we want to see the rule of law and we don't want to see China coercing its smaller neighbors to kind of, you know, seize uh, control or extend its military reach there. No one's going to be talking about the South China Sea really in Singapore. And they'll be talking about North Korea, but mainly behind, when, when the microphones are off, everyone's going to be talking about Trump. And where is the United States on any of these issues? Where are they going? What is what is Trump's real agenda? Is there an agenda? Is the U.S. no longer a reliable, credible, powerful ally? And should we take matters into our own hands more? Does Japan need to show more leadership? Does Australia need to show more leadership? So it's a kind of echo of what we were seeing in Europe in the NATO summit, where you kind of have this vacuum. Yeah, Alicia, I wonder how the sort of echoes of Trump's uh, deci- you know, decision uh, not to talk about Article 5 at a speech at NATO headquarters is, is playing there. Well, you know, I, if we're sort of a couple of days, we're now, what, how many days are we through the news cycle of when he decided to not talk about it? And now we've sort of gone through, we then had, you know, we had Mer- Merkel's beer hall comment and that sort of sparked its own fallout. And we're now a couple of days on from that. So there's been, there's been a, a, a little while for all of this to play out. And yet it's still going actually, which I think is, is kind of interesting because it's, it's amazing. It's been ama- one of the amazing things about the Trump phenomenon to me is, and, and it just goes to show 
how sort of ingrained uh, these alliances and this sort of order of things are for, for policymakers uh, is that every time, you know, he does, he says something that is, uh, every time he's, he indicates, you know, he's less than um, 100% thrilled with NATO, it sort of resends shockwaves through through the community. So so it's still going. Um, I think uh, now now we're in the stage of the news cycle where we've all, we've all sort of been told to cool our cool our jets uh, about what Merkel said, uh, which I which I think is is, is basically right. Uh, Remind our uh, listeners, sorry, what uh, what Merkel mm. said about the that Germany was what was it that Germany can't uh, can no longer rely solely on uh, the UK and the United States. Uh, I'm, I'm going to have to pull them up in front of me, but it's it's something along those lines that uh, in the past few days, she had just come from the G7 summit and she was saying uh, that the, uh, Europe's Europe's fate is in its own hands. Uh, she learned that 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 um, partners weren't weren't formally weren't, former partners weren't as reliable as expected. I don't want to mis- misquote her, but. That's a that's the gist of what she said. These there's a degree to which we all have to recognize that these you know she's in the middle of an election. Uh, you know these comments were to to a certain degree for for domestic consumption. You know her her opponent she she seems very poised to win it, but her opponent um, if anything hates Trump far more than she does. Um, but yeah, it, it's absolutely interesting, um, no doubt. And the and the Paris Agreement certainly adds to this sense of you know a very dramatic looming fallout between um, you know. Europe and the United States. It's it's really hard to to overstate the um, the the anger um, here at the at the notion that the U.S. might pull out of this. It, it's it's really dramatic. I don't know if you. I think it was Sarkozy um, who said uh, at the at the time uh, that Trump was elected, when everyone was sort of wondering about the potential consequences for Paris, uh, that you know if there was a pullout, he would he would impose a carbon tariff on on U.S. imports. His uh, views probably aren't as relevant as he expected them to be at the time, but they're reflective of you know how how angry Europeans really are about this. And I also I, I just saw just earlier a couple hours earlier that Martin Schulz, who is the social uh, democrat candidate candidate for chancellor in Germany, said something similar uh, that that Europe should seek to use its its standards as a stick basically to ensure that you know certain certain clean air standards are met if uh, various countries want want market access. So. So it just the the decision today is just adding to a dynamic that's already been in place. So I I, I wonder if we could pull back the lens, and I, I think there's a broader uh, uh, issue here that that joins the European and Asian questions together, and that is that my experience in government was there was not a single global challenge that we faced where we didn't start with our democratic allies in Europe and Asia as the focal point around which we generated international collective action. ISIS, climate, Ebola, nonproliferation, dealing with a rising China, dealing with a, a revisionist Russia. Every single national security challenge we face, we started uh, mobilizing the international community by turning to our democratic allies. You obviously saw that our democratic allies in Europe and Asia were extraordinarily nervous about Trump because of the rhetoric during the campaign, uh, which suggested that he was you know, unreliable, didn't have the right temperament, might abandon them, et cetera. And you saw this concerted effort early in the administration to send people like Mattis and Pence on the road at places like Munich or over to Asia to basically, don't worry about it. Don't worry about the tweets. There are a bunch of adults in the government. Things will basically be a nor- – it will basically be a normal Republican administration. And I think what the NATO summit basically suggested was that the adults in the cabinet aren't in charge, right? Because they clearly wanted Trump to do two things. One, 
was to be explicit about Article 5, which he refused to do. Mattis and McMaster wanted Trump to do that. He refused to do that, which suggests that that was either something he felt passionately about or the kind of the Steves, Bannon and Miller, kind of won the argument uh, in, inside. They also wanted him at the G7 to say something about Paris. They didn't they uh, you know, he obviously didn't do that and now is signaling uh, quite the opposite. So why would any ally in Europe believe Jim Mattis the next time he gets on a plane and tells them that he speaks for the president? He clearly doesn't speak for the president. And why at Shangri-La would people believe that whatever reassuring words that Jim Mattis has about China, North Korea or any other issue is actually reflective of the president of the United States? There's a real credibility gap. uh, And it's really damaging to uh, to our policy. The last point I would make here is that. I don't think we're likely to have a rupture. Like you're not going to see the collapse of NATO. You're not going to see the disintegration of of our alliances in Asia. But what you are going to see is a lot more hedging and mm-hmm. drifting. Uh, that is uh, allies who are, you know, hedging against the possibility that the United States might not be there by having slightly co- closer relationships with Russia in the, in, the, in the case of a country like Italy or, in Ch- or you know, as, as it relates to China, some of the countries in, in ASEAN and in Southeast Asia. So you could start to see hedging and drifting away from the United States. And then the next time the United States faces an international crisis— and people at the State Department, if there ever are any people at the State Department anymore, start picking up phones <laughs> to get people to make costly decisions to act alongside the United States. People are going to be are going to say, like, why do I want to cooperate with Donald Trump? He's toxic. Why would I expose myself to financial costs or political risks at home to cooperate with the United States? Those are the real uh, uh, risks. And I think we, the listeners should keep in mind for all of the existential angst we've all had during, not maybe all of us, but many of your listeners, I suspect, during the Trump administration, we've actually not faced a single crisis, uh, a real crisis. crisis. Right. Yeah. Everything has been manufactured. manufactured ones. Well, exactly. it, you know, it's either been yeah. something that's, you know, kind of Kremlin gate related that's about Trump's behavior or the, those around him, or it's been the North Korea issue, which has been ginned up as a reason uh, to put pressure on China. We talked about that before. We haven't actually faced an Ebola like situation or a BP oil spill or a Katrina or heaven forbid a Paris scale Mm -hmm. terrorist attack here in the United States. And to address any of those issues, at least beyond our shores, we're going to need help. And I'm not sure that people are going to answer the phone. The the one thing I would add is that I think the the dramatic reaction to Merkel's comments, you know, one, I I think they came about in part because it was um, a signal that she she may no longer see, you know, Trump, Trump is kind of a one-off, right? Um, you know, that we, we all sort of wonder, you know, is Trump just this freak occurrence or is he sort of part of a long-term trend in, in American foreign policy? Um, and, and the sort of sign that she, she thinks that there needs to be some hedging going on, I think is the signal that, um, you know, she, she's making plans for an America that's not going to be reliable, maybe even past Trump. So it's worth asking a question too. I was talking to some European diplomats and they were saying, you know, in a way, We've kind of had these discussions and these concerns anyway, even before Trump came along, about, you know, how how influential should we allow the U.S. to be and, and, and how responsible should we as Europeans be? And so I'd like to ask the question to everyone, you know, maybe uh, even before – whether – even before Trump came, became president, wasn't there a situation where U.S. influence and the kind of U.S. reach and global leadership – wasn't what it was. The, the, the circumstances have changed. The, the world has changed dramatically. China's rise and so on and so forth. And maybe Trump has kind of exposed that in a kind of accelerated, raw way. And maybe uh, this, you know, forces some of our allies to kind of step up more. And maybe we'll see a situation where the U.S. just isn't the automatic, you know, 
a kind of powerful factor or pillar uh, among democratic countries or among Western countries that it was? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. I think that um, I mean, look, the the tensions between the United States and our closest allies in Europe and elsewhere go back decades, right? I mean, there have been crises in the relationship. There were crises in the 50s, in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 90s, and obviously in the early aughts. I mean, you saw an enormous rift uh, in, during the lead up and the aftermath of the Iraq war in 2002 and 2003, where obviously the Germans and the French were on the other side of that equation and were very disturbed. I think you saw millions of people in the streets in Europe basically disturbed that uh, that Bush's reaction to 9-11 beyond Afghanistan, where remember NATO actually – uh, you know, came on our side and and triggered Article Five for the only time in the in the treaty's uh, uh, history. Uh, but with Iraq, uh, most Europeans were very much against that war and believed that this might be the kind of unipolar uh, uh, United States unleashed on the international system in a way that could profoundly undermine European security and global security. So we've seen this a little bit before. They were also, I think, disturbed by a disconnect, a growing disconnect, this kind of Venus Mars issue that people like Robert Kagan sure. used to talk about on values, and and that really manifested itself on things like Guantanamo and torture and climate, uh, Kyoto in particular, uh, and the Bush administration's attitude about that. What Obama did, even in the face of what of, of some retrenchment, right? There was some retrenchment, obviously, in the Middle East, where our forces came down dramatically in Iraq and eventually in Afghanistan. And people can debate uh, what effect that had on international security or the security of the region. But he was enormously engaged in Europe and made enormous efforts uh, from throughout the administration to try to better align our values, realign our values with our democratic allies. And as a consequence, there was a you know, the view of the United States in Europe and Asia went up. There was a uh, lot of goodwill. A, a lot of goodwill. Just look at the Pew data uh, on this. And we got something for that. They signed up on uh, to help us address Ebola. We got uh, the Paris uh, Agreement. We made, We got all these countries into the counter-ISIS uh, coalition. Uh, and so I think what, what, what they fear now is a little bit of the worst of both Bush and Obama. That is, they, they fear – a kind of swaggering militarism and uh, uh, that you saw from Bush, but dis- uh, uh, disconnected from diplomacy and engagement. They also fear a drift on values like climate and human rights. Uh, you saw that kind of the celebration of, of Trump in the Middle East from autocrats and uh, the wary response from Democrats in Europe. Um, and that that is happening in the context of what they might perceive to be continuing retrenchment, which they may actually see as a continuation from Obama. So it's almost the worst of all worlds where the United States is less present, less reliable, and less predictable. And that's not a recipe for stability. Yeah, I want to pivot to the the fight against ISIS in Syria here, if we can, just quickly. Um, you know, this is a place where Trump has shown an, an instinct for militarism. But, you know, there's an Afghan strategy review that is currently ongoing in which we will probably see a few thousand, if not a few thousand more than that troops put back into Afghanistan. Uh, And then there's been a significant ramp up in the U.S. effort in the fight uh, against ISIS in Syria, including some provocations maybe towards the Iranian regime and towards Assad's forces that we haven't seen before. Yeah, no, I I think it's really worth watching what happens in in southeastern Syria in particular. You had uh, uh, something that hadn't happened before. You had U.S. forces actually bombing Iranian-backed militia proxies in southern Syria. Uh, and, and, and it's not clear. I, I don't think the Trump administration really has a defined strategy as to what it's trying to do with Iran and Iran's uh, partners on the ground. But it was one of those kind of uh, one thing leads to another kind of situations where 
uh, dating back to your time uh, in government, Colin, you know, the U.S. with its partners on the ground in Syria has been pushing ISIS back steadily. And now there's this kind of last urban bastion in Raqqa. Mm-hmm. And as part of that, uh, in kind of the surrounding areas, southwest, you have this kind of small outpost where there's some U.S. special operations forces working with some local forces on the ground that, that are armed uh, and trained by the U.S. And these Iranian-backed mil- mil- militia got too close, and they were warned. And, I th- you know, we have this deconfliction situation, a, a mechanism with the Russians where we get on the phone and we tell uh, Russian counterparts, you know, we're going to be doing this here, and uh, please stay away. And uh, the Russians tell us similar things. And, and those warnings were given, but the Iranian proxies kept coming. And so... You know, the U.S. bombed Iran's proxies in Syria, and this is a very sensitive strategic area because ISIS is now losing ground, losing territory, and that creates a a kind of grab for territory and and opens up a new uh, conflict potentially where Iran wants to secure areas along the Syria-Iraq border so that it can have its links to to Lebanon and the Mediterranean and, and Hezbollah and Lebanon. And so... You can see this kind of collision course uh, potentially where the U.S. doesn't sit down and say we want to get into a conflict with Iran in southern Syria, but, it, but one thing might lead to another. So I, I think what you've got here is you've got the confluence of a bunch of different things. Some of it is just the geography of the conflict, which Dan has pointed to. So the two biggest cities that ISIS has controlled have been Mosul in Iraq and Raqqa in Syria. Mosul is on the brink of being taken back. Now only the old city is there. Uh, That will really smash uh, uh, the biggest concentration of ISIS fighters left in Iraq and push them uh, towards the Syrian border. Raqqa is now being encircled uh, largely by a force of of Syrian Kurds uh, and associated Arab tribal elements, which we call the Syrian Democratic Forces that uh, Trump is now arming up for the final push uh, at Raqqa. Uh, But there is this other bastion in Syria of ISIS uh, uh, fighters. And as some of them get squeezed out of Raqqa, that's going to grow. And that's in a place called Deir Azur. And this is a place that the regime cares a lot about. They have a little outpost, the the Syrian regime. They have a little outpost there. There are also a lot of energy resources, uh, oil and gas in the kind of neighborhood. So it matters. And as Dan alluded to, it's also it's on the way down the Euphrates River Valley toward the Iraqi border. And you have the Iranians who are interested in eventually building a kind of land bridge or corridor that stretches all the way from Iran through Iraq, either the western or northwestern parts of Iraq, into Syria and then on to Lebanon. And so you kind of have this race. You have this race going on where you have uh, U.S.-backed groups uh, coming at Deir Ezzor eventually from the north and from up from the south. And you have the Iranians and Iranian-backed groups coming from the east and the west. And you're going to have all sorts of situations in which U.S.-backed forces and Iranian-backed forces, but also U.S. special operations forces that are accompanying these folks in much closer proximity and with rules of engagement where they can schwack these guys if they get too sure. close, which is what happened near this place called Ataf in southeast uh, Syria uh, not too long ago. Um I don't think that the Pentagon is is spoiling for a fight with Iran across the board, but the scenarios under which we could end up seeing events like we saw uh, not too long ago where we end up taking kinetic action against Iranian actors or their proxies is going up. And the the thing that worries me the most is that this kind of – the geography of the battle space is coinciding with a couple of other things. You've got Trump engaged in a strategic review on Iran which will culminate sometime in the next couple of months. We know that Trump is very hawkish on Iran. 
Iran in general. They don't really want to ditch the nuclear deal, but they want to get much more muscular outside the four corners of the deal against Iran's destabilizing activities. This is actually where the adults in the cabinet agree, right? Mattis, McMaster, they also agree that we need to get uh, have sharper elbows with the Iranians. You have the a very impressionable commander-in-chief just back from the Middle East, where he got this hero's welcome, basically, and was completely spun up by both the Saudis and the Israelis on the uh, on the Iranian threat. You had a speech in Saudi Arabia where Trump basically uh, wrote the Saudis a blank check for their policy across the Middle East, uh, uh, didn't hold them accountable for anything as it relates to the Sunni jihadist threat, and called out Iran as the principal uh, supporter of terrorism uh, in the region. And then last but not least, you have the White House in the midst of an enormous domestic political crisis. And the only time that Trump has ever looked presidential, according to the Beltway bandits on both sides of the aisle, is when he bombed Syria. 59 uh, uh, cruise missiles shot into uh, into an Assad air base in early April. So I worry that the geography of the conflict, the hawkish impulses of the administration, and a president who's in trouble and might be interested in, in having a fight to distract from his domestic political problems and prove that he's not Putin's poodle, right, because Iran is aligned with uh, uh, Russia in Syria, that this could all kind of intersect in ways that that uh, spin out of control in Syria. Yeah, let's let's move a little bit to the, his domestic problems at home. Uh, I mean, this is a president that clearly needs some other enemies or talking points overseas to detract from, you know, Comey. James Comey, the director of the FBI, is going to be testifying next week unless the president uh, tells him not to to (laughs) and invokes an executive privilege, which seems like would be a field day for the for the press and for everyone. Um, Almost like giving back the Russian dachas. (laughs) <laughs> He'd never do right. that. This was in this was in Maryland, right? Um, no. Yeah, but you know, maybe he say they'll revoke the or or you know not allow them to have dip- diplomatic immunity in their little fishing uh, enclaves uh, along what is it the uh, Chop Tank River or something? But their subpoenas have been issued to Flynn to the uh, president's longtime lawyer Michael Cohn. We've got you know Trump granting an ethics waiver to seventeen people in the administration, including four lobbyists. So doesn't really look like draining the swamp. And of course, we have the ongoing Mueller investigation into the the Russia election hacks and Jared Kushner. So there's a lot swirling around this White House right now. No, I mean, yeah, exactly. And when he was on that trip, the, the scandal would not go away. And the revela- revelations are almost daily. So, you know, just be- before we came on air, like last night, uh, the Washington Post broke the story that the U.S. Uh, is planning to give back those properties where uh, Russian spies dwell. And it's not clear they're getting anything in return. Uh, so it feeds uh, these suspicions uh, and, and, and these concerns that somehow the Trump White House has some worrisome relationship with Russia. Or, or, and, and then the Kushner, uh, the Kushner story was huge while he was traveling. And they, they have not been able to address that uh, adequately either. And it, 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 these are not; uh, these are becoming less partisan. I mean, you have a lot of Republicans on the Hill that are extremely nervous about this, extremely anxious, often expressed privately. But I mean, th- 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 it's putting them in an extremely difficult spot because some of their constituents voted for Trump, a good number of them. Uh, some of their constituents actually don't care about some of these revelations, uh, even when they point to potential obstruction of justice. But some of their constituents don't like it. And so they're, they're in a, a tough spot. And what's interesting is the White House has basically not addressed the whole Kushner story, that, that he had this well, back this channel is, this with the This is family, right? How do you do that? 
Alicia, this is even reverberating across the pond with uh, uh, Nigel Farage being named a person of interest. I hear. Yeah, poor poor Nigel. <laughs> he's not having a, he's not having a, the best time. But yes, uh, it, it seems like he has been, which is which is pretty interesting. Um, obviously, you know, Nigel Farage paid that that infamous uh, visit to Assange in in the sorry Julian Assange. I don't think we've mentioned him yet. Who you know runs WikiLeaks, obviously, and and is a crucial player in all of this. Uh, he paid a visit to him in the Ecuadorian embassy. There was a a much passed around interview with with Farage. I, it was either by uh, Deutsche Welle or or by uh, Die Zeit. When when a a journalist asked Farage about his Russian connections, and Farage basically ended the interview and walked out of the room. So uh, yeah, he's becoming increasingly interesting as a figure. But it's hard to know uh, you know what exactly to make of this yet. There's also I just want to flag up a, a data a recent data point that you know is again sort of not it's a little early to be offering a lot of interpretations. But today um, there was this shift from Putin that um, was reported on where he he told a bunch of reporters that it's possible um, that private Russian hackers could have been involved in the cyber attacks and the hacks into the DNC. Um, and, and, and that's kind of interesting. I it's, love uh, the phrase he used. I think he said they're like artists. artists. You know, you know, they're, you patriotic. Can, they're patriotic. They're patriotic artists. Pa- they're patriotic. Yeah. You never know artists. what these guys are going to do. Altruistic. Right. And maybe Russian hackers are, you know, more free spirited than than our <laughs> hackers. Um, but the but it, it it it's an interesting thing to happen. Again, it, you know, it's sort of there's some been some interpretation about you know maybe he he also had said something uh, like he could you know imagine imagine that it would be easy enough to build build the build evidence that could link these hacks back to Russia. Uh, it would be easy to construct something like that. And it's it again. Hard to know what to make of it, but it seems to, you know, hint at something could potentially be be coming. Either you know, someone someone is about to get 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 the get the blame for this, or or that some he's worried that some some kind of evidence is going to come out and sort of wants to clarify, you know, that these these are alternative explanations. And I'm kind of going out on a limb a little bit, but it is an interesting thing that happened today. So I, I look, it's the sheer volume of news. I think, I don't know if, you know, the listeners are a bunch of nerds. So there was a back and forth on, on Twitter uh, a week or two ago, a bunch of, a bunch of uh, national security nerds who also like science fiction talking about the Battlestar Galactica episode where the Cylons attack every 33 minutes. Uh, and it's just <laughs> relentless. And that that's what the national security news cycle feels like. It's like every 33 minutes, there's a, there's a, a story from the Post or uh, the Times or McClatchy or Reuters uh, or foreign policy or wherever that would be an earth shattering, all consuming thing for any other administration. But there are like three of them every day. So I think it's hard to keep track. I think I would encourage your listeners to kind of focus on four threads uh, in the the next couple of weeks. The first is uh, the first three of them uh, relate to various aspects of possible collusion between the Russians and and uh, and elements of the Trump campaign. Uh, The the first being, was there any relationship on the hacking and descent and leaking of DNC, DCCC, Podesta emails. That's the WikiLeaks angle. That's where Farage and Assange uh, are are wrapped up as uh, as is Roger Stone, a close confidant of uh, President Trump, who Trump says he doesn't talk Barely to anymore. But him. but now yeah. the New Yorker said the day after Trump says he doesn't talk to him anymore, they talked on the on the phone. So uh, they clearly talk. Uh, and so was there any um, uh, relationship, collusion, coordination between elements of the Trump campaign and those? patriotic hackers or whoever uh, else we know from the intelligence community, they were uh, Russian military intelligence uh, and others to disseminate the information and time leaks in a way that would be politically uh, damaged. So that's one kind of uh, area. The second is whether 
there were any financial quid pro quos uh, between elements of the Trump uh, campaign and elements of the Russian government or folks close to Putin. And uh, this is actually one of the things that surfaced through all the Kushner uh, uh, stories. It's not just that whether he you know, wanted to have a secret channel of communication and potentially using the Russian embassy to talk back uh, to the Russians, which is weird. It's not a normal back channel no matter what H.R. Uh, uh, McMaster or John uh, Allen John or Kelly, uh, Kelly says about uh, this stuff. Uh, but separate from that, we all, you know, Kushner met with this guy Gorkov, who's a senior executive in a Russian bank that's under sanctions because of the uh, Ukraine uh, in, uh, invasion uh, and annexation of, of Crimea. Uh, and there was there's some uh, you know reporting suggesting that the FBI is looking into whether there might have been a you know a financial quid pro quo whereby Kushner would help uh, a Trump administration lift sanctions against Russian exchange for financing and other things related to business interests. I have no idea if any of that's true, but it speaks to a broader pattern of behavior that people have accused of, you know, the Manaforts of the world and Carter Page, potentially Flynn himself, about whether there were financial kickbacks associated with potential changes in policy, a softening on NATO, a, a softening on sanctions, uh, and other things that promises were made during the campaign uh, that are now uh, potentially coming uh, to fruition. So that's the financial quid pro quo. The third is uh, the p- possibility for uh, collusion in the social media space. We know that the Russians engaged in fake news, trolls and bots that bombarded social media networks in the weeks before the election, there were huge spikes in the in the states that swung the election for Trump: uh, Wisconsin, and Michigan, Pennsylvania. Um, it's not at all clear to a lot of intel analysts why uh, the Russians would un- how the Russians would understand how to micro-target Bernie voters or African Americans in key districts to su- try to suppress the vote. And so, was there collusion between uh, uh, elements of the Russian government or fronts of the Russian government in this kind of propaganda campaign and elements of Trump? And again, Kushner's name comes back into this equation as do groups like Cambridge Analytica. I mean, I sound like a conspiracy theory now. I don't know if any of this is true, <laughs> but this is why it's so confusing is that there are th- there are the stories that are in all these uh, categories. And the last not, but not least, and this is where I think the Comey testimony comes in, is there's the obstruction of justice issue. Like there may actually be no crime or there may now be no crime that goes all the way up to Trump. Like I would very, if, it would surprise me quite a bit if some of the underlings don't end up in jail. For lying to investigators or for doing things, and Trump may or may not be aware of uh, of those uh, of those activities. Uh, but the president himself has engaged in a whole bunch of behavior that I'm not a lawyer, but looks certainly looks like obstruction of justice. He fired Comey. He admitted because of the Russian investigation. People like Ben Wittes, who are friends with Comey, have suggested that when he couldn't win Comey over and co-opt him, he basically threw him over the side of the ship. Uh, and uh, you know, Comey himself. Uh, well, I should say. People who know Comey or have leaked to the press on uh, apparently on his behalf have suggested that the president told him to stand down from the Flynn investigation. And at least I don't know whether Comey's going to end up testifying or not. Uh, but the press reporting the last couple of days uh, suggests that Comey's going to say that Trump asked him to back off. Uh, and so even if all of the collusion stuff is BS or it doesn't get anywhere near Trump, there's a cover up here. Or at least that's what it looks like. Uh, and so I, I just think listeners need to kind of parse out as they are bombarded with uh, the daily 5 or 6 p.m. story from the Times of the Post uh, that it it gets binned into one of these four categories. Those are great points. I, I was going to say uh, it, it, it is interesting how uh, scandals or uh, fledgling scandals take on familiar patterns, right? And so it's so often the case that it is not the original crime or wrongdoing, but it is how it is handled 
uh, covered up, played down, and then maybe even justice obstructed. And we, we don't know. It's, it's early. And, and I think it's really important to keep saying we actually don't know what is at the heart of all yep. this. But what is uh, interesting is that the White House manages to feed it themselves constantly, not this only is by the, the president's tweets, wound, but yeah. just this story about handing back properties to Russia where Russian intelligence was operating. And, and those properties were seized because of the meddling in the election. And for nothing in return that at least we, we know of, nothing really concrete here or substantial, those properties are handed back. Why would you do that now? Yeah. If you're trying to change the subject, yeah. why on earth would you what, – what does the U.S. get out why of Why do that? you meet with Kislyak and Lavrov the day after you fire Comey? Like, like right. no normal administration that actually cares about its image would do things this way, separate and apart from whether there's any criminal or unethical behavior going on. Right, right. That's what I mean. Like, so there's kind of like this, this uh, mess up. Screw up factor uh, or cock up, as they say in London. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I want to just come back to you, Colin, for one thing. I mean, you served in a famously scandal free administration. Um, What about the tan suit? (laughs) <laughs> that was or that, the great poupon come on man pretty the tan suit was pretty awful that's unforgivable um the audacity of taupe <laughs> but when obama's been so silent uh you know there was the little bit of a kerfuffle and and perhaps rightly so over his four hundred thousand dollar speech which i think uh the optics of that were pretty ugly does he, I mean, you know the man pretty well, does he speak up if Trump pulls out of the Paris Accords? I mean, this is a legacy issue. It would surprise me if if he didn't say something. I mean, look, I, he he hasn't been completely radio silent. I think that most presidents try to give the next uh, uh, person a little, a little a bit of a decent interval. I think one of the interesting things is that while that's been true of Obama, there are a lot of former Obama officials who were quite active right away in criticizing uh, the Trump administration. I, that may be a byproduct of technology and the way in which the news cycle operates or just how how freaked out we all were uh, by uh, by the Trump administration. Nerds, this is a plug for our shadow government blog. Roger, <laughs> just... Roger that. Um, uh, so, uh, but look, I mean, the president's come out and said some things on uh, immigration issues. Uh, you know, interestingly, he was in uh, Berlin meeting with Merkel uh, just before Trump uh, went to the NATO summit and met with Merkel, and those optics could not have been any different, right? Obama was met in Germany as a rock star. 70,000 people showed up to see him just have a TED-style uh, interview conversation uh, with Merkel. Uh, he was kind of met with all this uh, adoration, and he said a lot of things about how we can't build walls and we have to stay true to our values. And he never, you know, says the word Trump, but I think it's pretty clear uh, what 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 he's talking about. So, look, these are things that that I, I, I've not interacted with uh, President Obama at all since he's left, uh, left office. Um, but these are obviously things that he believes passionately in and that he and his administration invested a lot. And so um, on these issues that matter a lot for the future, I suspect we'll hear more and more uh, from him, but that he'll largely frame it as he uh, as he has in terms of general values and principles and interests as opposed to and then let people figure out that he's who he's criticizing. And what about your 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 other former boss, uh, Vice President Biden? He seems more willing to say some say things. <laughs> well, you know, the, that's always been so the this case. is interesting. Uh, so uh, Biden used to say all the time, I, look, my problem is not that I say what I mean. It's that I say everything I mean. <laughs> so, uh, look, I, I, uh, you know, the vice president has been on the road a lot, giving a lot of commencement uh, speeches. Um, and I think that's just that's created a platform uh, for him to make the, the, the argument. I think he's he's really been trying to make kind of two arguments. One is that. 
it's down as down as a lot of us are. Our best days are still ahead of us, and we need to keep that in mind. That 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 you know he talks about his experience during the 1960s, and you had assassinations and riots and the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement. Like it felt like the republic was kind of being ripped apart, and we got through that. We'll get through this uh, again. And part of it is to stand up for the same types of values issues um, that uh, you know I talked about just a second ago with with Obama. But I just think he's been he's been out there a lot. Well. I think we've been out there a lot. Uh, this has gone quite long. We've almost hit two Battlestar Galactica news cycles now. So <laughs> thank you, ER nerds, for sticking with us. And I want to thank Colin, Dan, and Alicia for being with us today. We'll see you all again soon. You've been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm Ben Pauker, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks very much for joining us.